passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And uh, the rest of us, this is this morning, um, the morning that we return to 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's our our passage this morning. Uh, We're looking at David and Goliath, all right? Uh, So we're getting right right back into it. One of the most well-known stories, not just in the church, probably outside the church as well. And um, it is a regular occurrence when it comes to this passage uh, to, to hear it really misused. Regular occurrence to hear in sports talking about David taking down Goliath. I, I did a, a quick online search this past week to, to look at, at how this passage is interpreted, and I found a number of books um, talking about business and leadership principles that you can gain from this story, uh, uh, spiritual principles that you can gain from this story, um, even principles on how to be an effective pastor uh, from this Story and, and I want us to just consider that this story isn't isn't primarily a, a feel good underdog story that we can use to, to learn how to be courageous how how we can learn to, to persevere against impossible odds it's it's not about facing your giants as one popular Christian book claims this is a passage that we must look at in context we have to understand this passage not just in the context of what it's saying here in chapter 17, but really what is being said in the book of 1 Samuel as a whole, what is being said in the entire Bible? How does this fit in? What is the Bible trying to communicate to us? And so since we've been gone from 1 Samuel for a couple months, I I figured it'd be appropriate for us to just remind ourselves, kind of set the stage for what is the purpose of this book. Why has God given us in the Bible the story of of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel? Where does it fit in? What does it matter? Is it just a collection of loose stories? And if we consider that, we'll see, or, or we can remember from a couple months ago, that 1 Samuel is this book that is primarily about one thing, and that is about our need for a king. But it's not just our need for a king, it's our need for a king who is going to point us to the true king, to point us to the king of glory. That's the message of 1 Samuel. We need a king who is going to point us to the true king of glory, God himself. That's where the story of 1 Samuel starts. It starts in this time where there is no king and the people of Israel are morally and spiritually bankrupt. And part of that is because of their wicked leaders. And so God, in response to wicked leaders, graciously gives them a prophet and a leader. His name is Samuel. And under Samuel's leadership, the people of Israel, they return to the Lord. They follow the Lord for the first time in generations. But it's the end of Samuel's life. As it draws nearer, the the people, they don't have this heart to truly follow after God. And so they ask for a king. But they don't just ask for a king, they ask for a king like the nations. 1 Samuel 8 says it this way. And they said, the people said, no, but there shall be a king over us. 
that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. In the context of the Bible, asking for a king isn't inherently wrong. It's actually been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. We see when God makes a promise to Abraham, he promises that kings will come from him. He, he reiterates this promise over and over to Abraham's descendants. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we see that God actually has a plan for kings when that is a part of the nation of Israel. The problem isn't that they ask for a king, it's that they ask for a king like the nations. In other words, what they're asking for is not a king that will point them to the king of glory, what God's plan actually is. Instead, they're asking for a king who will replace the true king. Rather than pointing them to God, they ask for a king who will replace God. And we see over the course of 1 Samuel 9 through 16, the, the account of Saul as he is the king over God's people. God gives them exactly what they ask for. They ask for a king like the nations. God says, all right, here is a king like the nations. From the very moment we encounter Saul, he's not just a good guy who, who ends up falling away at the end. He is massively missing the point of what does it mean to be God's faithful king. And over the course of Saul's reign, he persistently, habitually rejects God, rejects the king of glory, goes his own way. And so God, in 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 13, rejects Saul as well and instead chooses a king after his own heart. And that's what we saw in 1 Samuel 16. It's David. 1 Samuel 16 is this turning point in the book of 1 Samuel because for the rest of the book, we're, we're catching this, this contrast between David, this, this faithful king, and Saul, this king like the nations. The rest of 1 Samuel is all about the faithful king who follows the Lord, who, who leads the people in following after God, and then Saul, a king who desperately tries to cling to power and rejects God and his plan for the rest of his life. That's the context with which we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 17. If, you're, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that this is a lengthy narrative. 58 verses. We can't touch on all of the details of the passage. That's why I commend to you um, your Bible notes. There might be a couple questions um, that you have that are actually found in the Bible app. And so I'd encourage you to, to take a look at that. What we'll see as we look at this passage is that it, it basically hinges on four speeches. The main, the, the heart of this passage is not the action. It's the speeches. We have one speech from Goliath, and then we have three from David. And that's going to be kind of our roadmap for this morning. We'll look at each of these speeches, and then we'll look at the epilogue. And then we'll just take a few moments to consider, okay, what about us this morning? So that'll be kind of our plan this morning. Um, let's pray once more as we jump into God's Word. Father, we, uh, we, we join your servant David, who centuries ago said, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And we thank you, God, that your word is indeed perfect, that it does indeed revive the soul. 
And God, as we approach your word this morning, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us this morning so that we might glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, let's look at our first speech, and, and um, that's verses 1 through 11 with Goliath and Israel. The, see, the, the text starts kind of by setting the scene in verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on one side of the mountain, and the Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. A map is worth a thousand words in this example. So let's go ahead and throw that map up here of kind of what we're talking about. The Philistines have been subdued by the Israelites for several years at this point, and now they're leaving behind the coastlands, right next to the Mediterranean Sea, and they're following this, this uh, path through the, the mountains up to the heartland of, of Judah. And this path, this pass through the mountains, as it goes up into the highlands, the, the mountains of Judah, is called the Valley of Elah. It goes from Gath, this Philistine city near the Mediterranean Sea, all the way up to Bethlehem. And the Philistines, they begin marching up this pass in order to take over Israel. But the Israelites become aware of it, and after about eight miles of, of this Philistine advancement, the, the Israelite army goes out to meet them, and these battle lines are drawn in this valley of Elah. And what we have is this deep ravine, and in between, uh, in between these two camps of, of armies, on the, on the south side of, of this ravine is the Philistine army, and on the north side, on this other mountain, is the Israelite army. And this dissolves into a standoff. The Philistines, they can't advance any further into the heart of, of Israel. The, the Israelites, they can't push them back to the coastlands. So the Israelites, they've, they've, in one sense, they've, they've won a victory in stopping a total takeover, and yet they haven't won a complete victory by pushing the Philistines out of their territory. So that's the context here in the first few verses. Verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So here we see why the Philistines weren't able to push the, or excuse me, the Israelites weren't able to push the Philistines back to the coast. It's because of Goliath. Goliath was a monstrosity, to put it mildly. Not only was he incredibly tall, he was also heavily armed. If you look at this, this chunk of verses here, this is the longest description in the entire Bible of someone's armor. And the point is very clear here. It's trying to get a part, uh, this point across. It's saying, Goliath is this awesome and terrifying foe. 
He is massive. It, it, who, who could possibly stand against someone that is this big, this well-armed, and has weapons such as him? Verse 8. He, Goliath, stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he, is, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Here we see that Goliath issues this challenge. Rather than this battle that involves both armies, he's just saying, hey, why doesn't one person from Israel come forward to fight me? And the winner between us in this one-on-one -on -one matchup They'll win the war. And to understand what Goliath is saying here, we have to understand how ancient people saw battles. Ancient battles, according to, to ancient people, weren't just a, a battle between two armies or, in this example, between two people. They were primarily a battle between two different gods. And so the, the prevailing wisdom of the day was whoever's army won, that was the stronger god. So in this battle between Israel and the Philistines, it is not just a matchup between these two nations. It's actually a matchup between the Lord, between Yahweh, Israel's God, and between the Philistines and Dagon, their chief God. But it goes a little bit further. Not only was this true of, of nations, armies fighting one another, but if the gods have to, to work out who's stronger between national armies, they could just do the exact same thing between two people. And so what Goliath is saying here is, I want, you know, let's, let's spare some unnecessary bloodshed. We're trying to prove whose God is stronger, whose God is better, whose God is more worthy of service. So why don't we just go one-on-one? -on -one? I'll represent Dagon. One of you come forward. You represent the Lord. You represent Yahweh. The winner gets to take all because their God is supreme. So what Goliath is saying here is he's saying, hey, you know what? Dagon challenges the Lord. He challenges Yahweh to a battle to see who is superior. Verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So here are Goliath's words. They're not just a challenge to Israel. They are a challenge to Israel. They are also a challenge to the God of Israel. That when, when Goliath challenges the armies, he's not just mocking Israel's army. He's also mocking God. He's mocking the Lord. He's saying, no one can defeat Dagon. Not even your God, Israel. So come forward and prove who is the stronger God. And there's an implication in this text. That if an Israelite does not step forward, does not accept the challenge, then the Israelites are implicitly saying that they know Dagon is superior as well. That the Lord cannot defeat Dagon. And so what happens next? The, the whole 
mass of, of Israelites, they, they get in line to volunteer to fight him and say, no one's going to talk about our God that way. We're going to take him down because the Lord is supreme. He is, he is stronger than any other God there is, right? Not, not quite. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Of the whole host of Israel, not a single person is found who is willing to stand up and defend the honor of the Lord. We're right here at the end of this first section, and we're, we're left wondering, is there no one who's going to take seriously the glory of God? Is there no one who trusts in the promises of God? Is there no one who will put themselves on the line because they believe that God is greater? Does all of Israel, in spite of what they may confess to one another on Sunday mornings or whenever they gather for worship, does all of Israel really think at their hearts level that Israel, the God of Israel, is no match for Dagon? It's a sobering picture of the state of Israel's spirituality at this moment. Thank goodness the text isn't over. We transition to the second speech. First we had Goliath and Israel. Now we have David and Israel. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So the text shifts to 14 or so miles away from the front lines in the town of Bethlehem to this man named David. We were introduced to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here we see David. He's in his late teens. He's too young to be enlisted in the army, so he's busy watching his father's flocks. The stalemate between Israel and the Philistines has lasted for some time. We see in verse 16 that this lasts for 40 days. And so over the course of those 40 days, David has made a number of journeys from Bethlehem to the front lines and then back. And providentially, he's about to make another trip. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting their war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the, char the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers." 
So here we see that David has made another trip from Bethlehem to the front lines to check on his brothers, but this time is different because of the timing. At this time, David arrives right when the the Israelite army is going out to to gather on the hill to stand opposite of the Philistines and making this war cry, showing we're not afraid of you, even though they really are. And his brothers aren't in the the camp. And so David goes to the front lines for the first time to check on his brothers. And that's when the narrative shifts. Verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. Just a side note. The name Goliath is is rarely used in this passage. Most of the time, the text just refers to him as the Philistine. It's a challenge to the God of Israel. It's not focusing on the individual. It's focusing on this challenge to, to God himself. The Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And those last four words change everything. And David heard him. For six weeks, Goliath has challenged the people of Israel to defend the honor of Yahweh twice a day for 40 days. And for six weeks, no one has volunteered. The message is clear. The failure of Israel is complete. The army has failed. Saul the king has failed. Remember what this book is about. This book is about our need for a king who is going to appoint us to the king of glory. And here's your chance, Saul. 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel said, we want a king like the nations, a king who's going to go out and fight our battles for us, and here's your chance. Go out, defend the honor of Yahweh. Where are you, Saul? Saul is hiding. The point of the text is clear. If no one has stepped forward by now, no one is going to step forward. Until those four words... And David heard him. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So Goliath strikes terror into the hearts of Israel. They all flee from the front lines back at the camp. David is filled in on the situation. He's brought up to speed. They say, this Philistine, he's been doing this for weeks and for weeks. No one's gone out to defend Israel. No one's gone out to defend the Lord's honor. Saul has offered riches beyond count to anyone who volunteers to fight Goliath, and yet no one's done it. Because after all, what point are riches if you are dead? And it's in this context that David speaks for the first time. The first time in the Bible that we have words recorded of David. That's significant because we see what David's focus is here in the very first words he speaks. What we see in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
Don't miss David's chief concern here. It's not primarily the reward. Yes, he he does say, hey, what exactly is going to happen to the person who wins? But his chief concern is taking away the reproach from Israel. And after hearing Goliath and his words, David is not driven to terror. He's driven to holy wrath. How could someone possibly speak about God like this? That's what the rest of his words make clear. Who does this Philistine think he is talking about the living God and his armies in this way? For the first time in the story, someone thinks about it from God's perspective. David at long last asked the question that should have been the first question on the minds of the Israelites when they first heard Goliath's challenge 40 days ago. Does does having a living God actually matter? Not just a statue, but a God who is alive and active and with his people, who has promised to bless his people, to be with his people. Does having a God like that actually matter? And unlike everyone else in this story, David actually lives in light of that truth. It's not just about what he professes with his words, but it actually is something that that transforms the way he lives. It permeates every fiber of his being. It compels him to act because of his understanding of who God is. He is so aligned with the heart of God that he can't bear to stomach the disgrace of this Philistine throwing the name of God into the mud. And if no one else is willing to act, then he will. Because he can't do anything less. Verse 27. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. They completely ignore the the heart of David here. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard him when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your hearts, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Before David is able to face Goliath, he has to face his brother. And Eliab, I'm going to assume he's, he's got his conscience pricked by his brother's words. He hears his little brother saying what he knows deep down he should have been saying the whole time. And yet, instead of joining his brother and saying, you know what, David, you're right. He decides to make himself feel better by lashing out at David. He doesn't rally alongside him, rally alongside this defense of 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 the Lord's glory and honor, he instead slanders David's character. He says, you know what? You're just, you're abandoning your duties because you're nothing more than a bloodthirsty warmongering teen. You just wanted to come see bloodshed. And David, he doesn't respond. Because David, he, he holds his peace because, because for David... He's not going to defend his own reputation. He's got someone else's reputation he cares about more. Like, 
I'm not going to worry about you slandering me. I'm, I'm concerned about this person who's slandering God. I'm not going to go to battle with you, Eliab. I, I'm, I'm going to go battle with, with Goliath. Again, he's, he's completely, utterly focused on the glory of God. That's his one concern. Now, as you can imagine, when someone finally starts talking this way, word gets out, it spreads through the army like wildfire, and it reaches the ears of Saul. And so Saul calls for David to come before him. And that is where we see our third speech between David and Saul in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. All right, so Saul's got what he's wanted, right? Saul has wanted this whole time for someone to step up and fight Goliath. And here is David. David's going to do so. So Saul says, go for it. Good job. No, not at all. Verse 33. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine and fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. We don't have time to look at this, but there's a parallel here between Eliab, Saul, and Goliath. All three of them are described in Scripture as tall. All three of them stand opposed to David. And just as David has to first face Eliab, now he's got to face Saul before he's able to face Goliath. His chief concern. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David, he, he first points out, you know what? I have a fair bit of, of experience from shepherding my father's flocks. Hey, I fought off animals. I've killed animals that are larger than me, David. Goliath shouldn't be any different because for, for David here, the fact that this uncircumcised Philistine is desecrating the name of God. He's nothing more than a wild beast. And so David says, you know what? I'm going to do the exact same thing because he has defied the armies of the living God. It's not because of anything within me. It is because of this God that I serve. David believes that the living God actually cares about his glory and his honor. And he believes that God will keep his promises that David is aware of how God has worked in the past, that he has delivered his people, he has saved his people in the past. He knows that God has promised to fight for his people if they trust in him. And so David is willing to step out in faith, confident, not in himself, but in this living God. 37 again. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. 
Whether Saul is convinced by David's argument or not doesn't really matter. He, he acquiesces. He says, you know what? You go ahead. You take care of this. I don't have any other option. He tries to dress him in his armor because, you know, who's, who else? How are you going to have any chance to face that Philistine unless you're not dressed in a similar manner? And yet David politely refuses, goes out to face the Philistine with just his sling and his staff. And with that, we transition to the climax of the story, the heart of the story. And it's the fourth speech. It's not the battle. The battle's over in two verses. The heart of this passage is this speech between David and Goliath. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his dogs. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. For the first time, someone responds to Goliath and his mockery of Israel and Yahweh. What what does Goliath expect in this moment? Does he expect at long last for Saul, the the tallest man in Israel, to come out and fight him? A mighty warrior we see in 1 Samuel 14 that Saul has spent his entire life gathering to himself mighty men. Is it going to be one of these? Whatever Goliath expected, it wasn't David. And he's so insulted that someone so young and so small, at least to him, And someone who is so ill-equipped, at least to him, is willing to come out and fight him. So how does David respond? The heart of the passage, verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This Day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give your dead body to the host of the Philistines. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David's speech, again, the heart of the chapter, he recognizes what the Philistines and what the rest of the Israelites do not. It is not military strength that is going to win the day. It is the Lord who keeps his promises. It is the Lord who is concerned about his glory and honor. If you have a Bible, just flip back a couple chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We saw this several months ago, that the uh, the song that we see from, from Hannah here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, is the lens through which the rest of the book is supposed to be read. And it ends, this song ends like this. He, God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
And David's words here in chapter 17 drip with the exact same themes. Not by might shall a man prevail. How will David overcome? It is because the Lord will give strength to his king. It's as if David is saying, Goliath, you have no idea who this God is that you are messing with, and you are as good as dead because you have mocked the living God. Notice that he doesn't just express confidence in God's deliverance. He also lists two reasons why God is going to deliver. The first one's found in verse 46. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Why will God act? It is because God desires for all nations to see his glory. That's the heart of God. God is not satisfied with just some small corner of the world knowing the truth of who he is. His mission is is global. His desire is for people from all nations, from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue to see and believe and trust in the unfathomable glory of this God. And so God will be at work so that the nations will see the glory of this God. There's another reason in verse 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The second reason is because God desires for his people to trust him more. God wants his people to trust him more. Not only does God want the whole earth to know his glory, he also wants his people who, in this chapter, their faith is anemic at best. He wants them to see and believe how great and faithful and awesome their God is. He's not just satisfied with with lip service. He's not satisfied with one David. He wants his entire people to have the faith of David. And that's the purpose of a king, remember? To lead his people in this type of faith. He wants all of his people to grow in their faith and their trust in his good promises. But he wants a people to run to him and to trust him. David tells this Philistine that he is as good as dead for his insults against the living God. And that's exactly what happens. I'm calling the rest of this chapter an epilogue because that's exactly what it is. If we grasp David's words in verses 45 through 47, everything else is just a foregone conclusion. We already know the outcome. Verse 48, when the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the head. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariram to as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Israel is roused to action by David's victory. Notice the contrast between their current king and their future king. Under King Saul, the Israelites 
cowered in terror, but under their future king, it is their enemies who flee in terror. The victory is complete because God has brought this victory through his anointed king. But the text doesn't end there. In fact, the text ends in in a somewhat weird way because the text brings us back to Saul. Verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As we finish the chapter, who are we left with? David and Saul. You know why? It's almost as if God is saying, don't get get caught up in David and Goliath. This chapter is really about David and Saul. Goliath is not much more than a measuring stick to gauge the faithfulness or lack thereof of these two kings. We have a king like the nations and a king after God's own heart. A king who desires to replace God and a king who appoint the people to God. And by the end of the chapter, how do these two kings fare? Sometime this week, read through 1 Samuel 17 and compare how David acts and how Saul acts. I'll give you three categories just kind of to prime the pump here. First one is this. Consider how both of them respond to the glory of God. Saul has six weeks to act, does nothing. David, he's consumed with a passion for the glory of God. I said the narrative changes with four words, and David heard him. And the moment we read that, everything changes because David won't sit idly by while God's honor is at stake. David understands that every facet of life is lived before the living God. He understands that his actions make a statement about the glory of God, whether that is a good thing or whether it actually detracts from the glory of God. So David is actually concerned with the glory of God here. Second, consider the faith of David and Saul in this passage. Faith at its core is a willingness to trust God that he is able to do what he has said he will do. In other words, faith is the belief that God keeps his promises, even when it doesn't look like he's going to. That's what faith is. And how does Saul fare? Well, his terror, his inaction speaks volumes about his faith. Again, what about David? David actually believes the promises of God here. He actually believes what God says in his word, he will do. He actually believes that God is faithful to his promises. One final area. Where did David and Saul look for salvation, for deliverance? Well, for Saul, it's readily apparent that he, apparent that he sees the might of, of Goliath, and he concludes that it's only going to be through military strength that they can hope to win. That's why he dresses David in his armor. What about David? David trusts in the Lord, not in these worldly means. He knew that God would defend his own glory, that God would defend his own honor, that it was the Lord who would defeat Goliath. It would not be David. It would not be a sling. You see that this chapter 
is a story, not about David and Goliath. It's about David and Saul. In virtually every way, Saul fails, and David is a faithful king. He's what a king should be. And as we've seen time and time and time again in 1 Samuel, the story of David is really meant to to turn our hearts, not to David, this good king, this faithful king, but to the son of David, the good king and faithful King Jesus. All the good things about David in this passage, his his faith, his concern for the glory of God, his his trust in the the way that God will deliver his people, not in worldly means, they're they're just a, a shadow from David of the substance of what we see in Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is the true and better David, and as such, he's a truer and better King than David. And as those who stand on this side of the cross, it's to this Jesus that we fix our eyes. And that's the heart of this passage. As followers of Jesus, we follow King Jesus in pursuing the glory of God while trusting in his promises. We follow King Jesus in pursuing the glory of God while trusting in the promises of God. You want to know how you can take this passage, David and Goliath, and apply it to your life. It's not by saying, be courageous, or, you know, have faith, or, or you can do anything. It is instead by fixing your eyes on Jesus, the son of David, the truer and better David, to see King Jesus consumed with the glory of God. King Jesus, this God who trusts, uh, this, this king who trusts in the promises of God, even though it leads him to the very cross, this Jesus who has the power to slaughter all of his enemies with a word and yet instead relies, trusts on the Lord for deliverance, even though that means he is put to death by his enemies. The story of David and Goliath, the story of David and Saul, is really a story about David and the son of David. It's a cry for us to follow our king, to follow Jesus in pursuing God and his glory and trusting in his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that you still speak through it. What an incredible gift that we have a God who lives. A God who still speaks. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a people who are concerned with your glory. Like David, consumed with the glory of God. Who have faith, who actually believe and trust you for your promises and a people who do not look to worldly means to accomplish your purposes, but instead look to you. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.